Today's scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You may be seated. Thanks, Jeff. Good morning, church. Thanks for being here with us today. I appreciate uh, all of you who have uh, endured snowpocalypse and traveled through the masses of snow to get here with us. Um, I know that, uh, yeah, even our even folks from Minnesota were pretty caught off guard by just how enormous our snowstorms are here. So thank you for being here with us. I uh, hope everybody had a great uh, Christmas weekend last weekend. I'm excited to uh, start the new year uh, this month by uh, just uh, taking some time to specifically uh, talk about just some church matters. Uh, we wanted to uh, next month, we're going to dive into the book of Hebrews, and we will be in Hebrews for about nine months. And so before we begin that long journey, we wanted to take this month just to talk about a few, you know, four key things in the church, things we believe and kind of distinctives that we hold in high regard. And so this month, uh, we are going to be talking about membership. Uh, we're going to talk about church leadership. We're going to talk about the ordinances of the church, and we're going to talk about stewardship. Essentially, uh, you know, God blessed us a great deal in 2021. It added many people to our, our number. And so we're kind of treating the month of January almost like a refresher for everybody. We're kind of going to talk about things that you might talk about in a membership class, but we're going to open scripture and we're going to bring those forward to remind those who have been here for a while why we do what we do and also to provide that information to those, that conviction to those who are joining with us, uh, maybe who haven't been with us very long. I want to make a note um, in that regard that throughout this series, I'm going to be referencing a book um, on occasion called Rediscover Church, and we have those at the connection area. Um, the reason I'm going to reference this is because we have uh, kind of decided we're going to be using this book as a tool uh, for membership going forward just to help people understand some of these concepts. And so because of that, to kind of tie in, I am going to reference this on occasion. This morning, I want to consider the significance of church membership by spending some time examining a situation in the church in Corinth that Jeff just read to us about. So I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to start in 1 Corinthians 5. Lord, thank you for this day. Um, thank you uh, for those um, who have, have gathered here with us, as, as well as for those who were unable. Um, Lord, I... Uh, Thank you uh, just for your abundant mercies uh, in 2021. And uh, Lord, I ask for your blessing as we start this new year, um, that you may 
you might continue to grow us. And I, I don't mean that so much numerically, uh, but I ask, Lord, that you would grow us in our depth, that, uh, that we would be a healthier church this time next year than we are today um, by your grace and um, in accordance with your goodwill. Lord, I ask today um, and each Sunday that the opening of your word, um, the worship uh, together might um, be doing just that very work in us, making us more like yourself for your glory and our good. I ask that that might be true today by the power of your spirit, and I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to start. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 and 2. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even amongst pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. The term here used at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 5, the term sexual immorality is the ancient Greek word porneia. It broadly refers to all types of sexual activity outside of marriage. It's the root word from which we get the modern word pornography. And this term is used throughout the New Testament over and over again. And this is not necessarily because the church in that day uniquely struggled with sexual ethics, but it's because Christ's teaching on sexuality was incredibly contrary to the views of Greek culture in which it's being spoken in. In Greek culture, sexual immorality was a regular part of everyday life, and it even was a regular part of the economy. And thus the followers of Christ stood out greatly, and they even offended culture by abstaining from these practices that were seen as normal. In many cases, that probably sounds a lot like today, where sexual immorality is a regular part of culture, and it definitely is a significant part of our economy. And to take a hard stance on sexual ethics is one of the most divisive things you can do as a Christian amongst a non-Christian. You can tell people a lot of things, but when you dive into this area, I've lost friends and I've lost close family over taking a firm stand on what the Bible says regarding how we are to partake in sexuality. Specifically, what's happening here in the church is that a man is engaged in ongoing sexual relations with his stepmother, and it can be assumed that she's not a Christian because her sin is not addressed by Paul. But the man is actively engaged as a, a member, a known person amongst this church here in Corinth. And Paul points out that this type of inner family relationship is one that would be considered taboo even by the pagans, nonetheless in the church of Jesus. And his response to the church is essentially asking them, how arrogant can you be? To allow sin to be overlooked is to make little of sin, and thus it is to make little of Christ himself. Not only this, but Paul points out that overlooking sin reveals a numbness within the hearts of these believers. He says, are you not rather to mourn? For this kind of sin ought to break their hearts. If we truly love one another, we should desire repentance and restoration. But for this to happen, the church must be able to address sin amongst its members. In fact, Matthew 18, 15 through 17 gives us a process for this. It says in verse 15, if your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, 
tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In this case here in Corinth, it seems evident that this man is unrepentant and he's unwilling to cease this relationship. So Paul says, let him who has done this be removed from among you. Now there are two questions that arise from this verse and I, that I want to consider today. Uh, and I want to consider these two specifically in the context of church membership and how they apply. The first question I want to ask is, what is this man to be removed from? What is it that he's being taken out of? And number two, I want to look at the question of who then has the authority to remove him from it. So the first question, Paul says he's to be removed from among you. What is he being removed from? And the short answer is the local church. He's talking about the local church, the body in Corinth. He is to be removed from their midst. In the book, Rediscovered Church, that I mentioned, Jonathan Lehman shares a story about traveling abroad in Brussels during his college years. At one point, his passport expired, and he had to go to the U.S. Embassy in Brussels, and he writes this. Stepping inside the embassy placed me on American soil. The embassy bears the authority of the U.S. government. It can say to the government and the people of Belgium, this is what the U.S. requests and what it intends. It can say of people like me, he is one of ours. In this way, the local church is like an embassy of heaven in the world. In the church, you step onto kingdom soil, not because of the building, but because of the people whom you are coming to be in the presence of. You step onto kingdom soil, and on behalf of God, his people are to remind you of the one to whom you belong. Through fellowship, through song, through everything you do, you are to be reminded of the gospel and to be reminded of your primary citizenship. But this is not what's happening in Corinth. In verse 6, it says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? The church is doing the opposite of this. The church seems to celebrate their tolerance and acceptance of this man. Apparently that's not a new problem for the church to water down what God has called us to in the name of acceptance and tolerance. They felt this posture made them more loving and they actually celebrated it. But Paul is confounded by this approach because there's nothing loving about disregarding the authority of God and his word. In this way, the church was trying to appease the world while also representing God. They desired this sort of dual citizenship, but Paul will have none of this. Notice that Paul seems, here in this text, to be more upset with the church, and maybe specifically the leaders within the church, than he is the man who is actually in the affair. Because the church has disregarded her responsibility and the elders have forsaken theirs. He warns them that a little bit of blatant, unrepentant sin distorts the whole church. An embassy ceases to be if it no longer values the laws of its land of origin. And for this reason, Paul says in verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. At the Passover feast, all leaven was to be removed from the house. 
and nothing with leaven in it could be eaten for an entire week. And Paul says that just as the Jews were to remove all the leaven from their home, so the church should remove unrepentant sin from its midst. And the why is because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. The Passover lamb, you probably remember, was the animal that God directed the Israelites to use as a sacrifice in Egypt on the night that God struck down the firstborn sons of every household in Exodus 12. This was the final plague that God brought before Pharaoh, and it led him to release the Israelites from their slavery. And God said that when he saw the lamb's blood on the doorframe of a house, he would pass over that home and not permit the destroyer to enter. Ultimately, the blood of the lamb marked that family as safe from the judgment of God that would pass through on that night. Paul is reminding the church that Jesus is the better Passover lamb, that his blood was shed that the judgment of God might pass over us. And because of this, he reminds them that you really are unleavened. In these four words, you really are unleavened, Paul reminds the church that the gospel is the basis for all that he is saying to them. The truth that God so loved the world that he gave his only son to live a perfect life, to die a brutal death, so that there would no longer be condemnation for those who are his but everlasting joy in Christ. This is the basis. You really are unleavened. Their motivation for removing the leaven amongst them is not that they might appear righteous or that they might earn favor, but it's that they already, once and for all, became perfectly righteous and accepted in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul is encouraging them to be, is who they actually are. Be who you are, holy, redeemed. This is the basic message of the entire New Testament in regards to how a Christian should live. Be who you are. You have been made righteous, thus live as the one who is righteous. And this is in contrast to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the holiness of God is put on display in order that we might see that we cannot measure up to it, but people are trying to measure up to it desperately and failing over and over again. But because of Jesus, the reason we now seek to live as holy, the reason we take sin seriously is because we are unleavened. It reflects who we actually are because of Jesus. The church is the beloved bride of Christ, bought with a price, cleansed through his blood. And we are an embassy to the world for those who have been set apart by the Father, awaiting our return to the homeland. Thus we hold the laws of the king as the highest in the land, not because they earn favor for us, for favor has been given to us perfectly and completely in Jesus, but because we know that his ways reflect his loving kindness and his perfect wisdom. And this man belonged to the church. He was not an occasional acquaintance. He wasn't an occasional visitor. He wasn't someone just checking things out. He was identified both by the church and the community as being a part of the body in Corinth. And Paul says, he's to be removed from that. To be removed from something, you have to formally be a part of it. You have to belong to it and have a commitment to it. You can't be removed from something you have no commitment to. His removal indicates that he has violated the divine terms of this sacred obligation. And thus the question arises, 
Who has the authority to remove him from the church? Let's read the rest of this, verses 8 through 11. It says this. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. There are two clarifications here in this passage worth acknowledging before we answer the question that was just proposed. First, Paul wants the church to understand that he is not telling them not to engage with sinners. The sexually immoral, the greedy, the swindler, the idolater, the drunkard, these are the very people we have been called to go to with the good news of the gospel. We see this in Christ himself who modeled this for us, being known as the friend of sinners. And it's in all of those circumstances that Christ found us and redeemed us and rescued us. So that's not what he's saying. And he wants to make that clarification. He's not talking about those within the world. He's talking about those who identify as brothers, those who identify as people of the way. Secondly, Paul is not saying remove all the sinners from the church because the church is full of sinners and it always will be. But the members of the church are to be, they're sanctified sinners. They're sinners who are being conformed to the image of Christ through daily repentance. That's the mark of a sanctified sinner. It's not that we don't struggle any longer. It's not that we don't fall, but it's that in the midst of falling, we're repenting and growing in Christ-likeness all the days of our life. The redeemed child of God needs aid in identifying his sin, and that's part of the job of the church. They need to be held accountable and to lay down that seed at the feet of the Father. When one is in sin and he is unwilling to walk away from his sin, he's one of two things. He's either A, a prideful Christian, in which case Scripture tells us that we should treat them as an unbeliever. This is so that the church might be protected, that this hissy fit, this pride, whatever's taking place, might not infect the church with what's happening, and also that perhaps this separation from the body will aid in humbling the brother that he might be restored at a later time. That perhaps taking this harsh stance, this stance that feels harsh, might be just what is needed to bring this brother or sister to a place of humility and repentance before the Father, that they might, we might celebrate when they are restored. Or B, it might be that this person is clearly identified as not actually being a believer. It can be incredibly difficult in our culture to tell who the Christians are. There are plenty of rich young rulers, people who are drawn to the idea of Christ's message. They enjoy Sunday mornings. They're educated with the correct church terminology, but they do not have an authentic love for Christ. And this is evidenced when, like the rich young ruler, they are asked to lay down that which they love more than Jesus. The church is the place 
where this facade is supposed to be revealed, not covered up. It's a place where the distinguishment is clear and set apart. Healing comes when sin is stripped of its power, called what it is and put to death. Sin's power is shame, but the gospel, rightly understood, extinguishes the flames of guilt. You really are unleavened, the gospel cries out. Thus, there is no fear of judgment, only freedom to be found in the midst of transparency and repentance. Loving a brother or sister by being honest about sin is not just a kindness, but I would argue that Scripture reveals it's actually a responsibility. The responsibility of whom? The pastor, the deacons, the worship leader? Not primarily. Scripture seems to tell us it's primarily a duty of the church member. In verse 12 and 13, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. In this, we see the reinforcement that church membership is a, is a job. It's an office. It seems to be a status within the local church. Notice in this situation, little is said about the father and the wife. Obviously, the wife was in sin, and the father definitely has some issues that could stand to be discussed given the circumstance, but the focus is on this son. And the reason seems to be because this son belongs to this church. He's one of them, and thus he is their responsibility to address. In this case, because he is unrepentant, it is the responsibility of the church to lovingly address this sin, offering the gospel, offering safety, and offering time. Like repentance is not always an immediate thing. It can be a process. Some people are working towards a process of repentance for a time, but it's happening. We see it. We're able to confirm. There is a, there is a, a grief. There's an acknowledgement of sin. There's a working towards walking away, putting to death this thing that has had a hold on you. The scripture tells us, go with, an, go with another one if the brother or sister doesn't listen. And then if they're still unwilling to repent, bring it to the elders. And ultimately, if no progress can be made, the church members must purge the evil person from among you. In a book, once again, Rediscover Church, the author paints a parallel to church membership and the work of Adam. Adam's work in the garden was twofold. He was told to be fruitful and multiply. He was to subdue and rule over new territory. The garden would be expanded through the fruitful labor of Adam and Eve. And he was also told to work and keep the garden. He was also to care for the place where God dwelled, keeping it holy. There was both to be fruitful and multiply and care for the place where God dwells. In many ways, your job today, the job of a church member, is a continuation of that to which Adam was called. Yet you fulfill these responsibilities as those whom have been redeemed by Christ. Adam failed, Abraham failed, Noah failed, but Christ did not fail. And thus, we follow in the footsteps of him who has redeemed us perfectly, continuing the work he's called us to. The work of the church is a holy work on the basis of Christ and not our own perfection. At Rooted Church, a member is to be fruitful and multiply. That's what we mean when we say create a movement of making disciples, mobilizing missionaries, and multiplying churches to the glory of God. 
we recognize that part of our work is to see the gospel go forward and the kingdom to be expanded. As a church member, God calls you to join with a local body under the authority of the church and its elders to expand the kingdom through taking the good news to the lost and making disciples of the saints whom he has put in your midst. Your work is also to work and keep the garden, to care for the people of God through committing to a local gospel family, committing to watch over them and keep holy the place where God dwells, which is not this building, but is these people. Certainly the pastors here in Corinth bear responsibility for the church not fulfilling this duty. Paul's words are certainly meant them, meant to lead them to repent and to lead as the Lord had called them to. However, his words are not addressed solely to them, but to the members of the church in Corinth that they might take seriously the weight of what God has called them to. As we consider this circumstance and we come to a close today, I just want to make a bit of an appeal. Church membership is a, it's an interesting subject. It's an interesting term because you will not find the term in the Bible and we're, it's, people are always really quick to bring this up. Like the Trinity, the term is just not in the Bible in that language, but the principle surely is. And there are many, um, there are many places I could point to to bring forth this, this scripture, but I, I didn't want to be here for you know, a few hours. Throughout Scripture, we see that there is a weight to belonging to a local church, that it comes with a commitment, that there is a set-apartness, that this man is being to be removed from something that he was a part of. How a church views membership is an open-handed issue. I want to be clear on that. There are great gospel-centered, Jesus-loving churches that would not use that term and would not do things the same way we do. I believe that God is gracious in giving churches authority to figure out and set up what that looks like in their context. But for Rooted, we believe that in our context, and our culture, there is a need for a formal covenant commitment amongst the local body of Christ because we do live in that place where it is hard to tell who the Christians are, that the world is very confused by this. And so to be a member of our church, we want to hold you to the standard Christ has called us to, that to be one who is constantly growing in Christ-likeness through repentance and through fellowship amongst the body. And so each aspect of our covenant is there for a reason because it displays one of the biblical commands for one who is part of a church. That's why when you read through our covenant, which is on our website, at the end of each number point, you're going to find a myriad of scriptures that reinforce that Bible belief about what a church member is. We would summarize church membership as this. Church membership is, an, is the, a church's affirmation and oversight of a Christian's profession of faith and discipleship combined with the Christian's submission to the church and its oversight. Now, I want to explain three of those words that I just read. Number one, I use the term affirmation. Like an embassy, the church is responsible for identifying a Christian in a community. A wolf should have no place to hide 
in a church. A non-believer posing as a Christian should be quickly snuffed out within a church. So through a part of the membership process is identifying and affirming someone is a Christian, someone walking with Jesus, they are following him, they've obeyed his commands. And that's, that's the reason that we have an application, and, and I wish I had better terms, and maybe one day I will, but we have an application for membership. It's a place where when you're, of you acknowledging, I want to be a member of this church, and part of that application is you share your testimony because we want to affirm this is somebody who belongs to Jesus, has been pursued by him, has been brought to the glory of the cross through him, and that this person is obedient to that which God has called us to. That God, when, when one is rescued, there are things that Jesus calls them to. Go forth and be baptized. Like there, there are these basic elements of submitting to Jesus that reflect what one has what's been done in the heart of one who is redeemed. And then we sit down together and we discuss these things because when we bring somebody forth as a member of a church, we're affirming as a church, we believe this person to be a Christian. We believe there's evidence of their faith. With well, the term affirmation, and I also use the term oversight, that it doesn't stop there, that the church's responsibility goes beyond just that. The church is responsible for overseeing the discipleship of the Christian and its care. Elders specifically are tasked with equipping the saint for the work of ministry. That rooted, this plays out in various ways. Our elders oversee rhythms that we believe promote discipleship amongst the members of the church, and we're constantly evaluating based on the unique people God has brought, what makes sense, what seems to do the most good in our setting. And these rhythms are intentionally created to put members in positions to build up and disciple other members. That we don't want, we believe there's a responsibility to membership, so we don't want to lessen that. We want to put some weight on that and put members in a position where they're the ones that are hearing the truth. They're the ones that are seeing people's lives and being able to witness fruit or witness sin and speak into that. That's what DNA and family groups are for. That's not just something cute to throw on the calendar. No, we, wanna, we want you to live life together. We want you to see how, how does he interact with his wife and how does she interact with him and what does it look like, the way that they love their children? What does it look like, the way they walk faithfully in whatever situation they have? How do they talk? How do they speak? How do they treat one another? These, we, we want to know these things about one another over time. We want the facade to go down and us to see one another for who we really are and then in DNA groups, the point is that we can come and be transparent and speak truth from God's word into one another. And these rhythms also include the Sunday gathering, where through the preaching of the word and the administering of the ordinances, the members are built up and equipped for the work they have been called to because you have been called to a work as a member of Christ's church. And then the third word I used, which is probably the least popular, is the word submission. And this is a scary word, but it's very biblical. When one becomes a member of a church, he or she is saying, I acknowledge in, in, in regards to what Scripture has called me, I submit to these leaders, acknowledging their spiritual authority as those who are tasked with keeping watch over my soul. I've been studying Hebrews um, in anticipation of preaching. And in Hebrews thirteen seventeen, it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. 
It's for this reason that eldership is not a light thing at Rooted. And it never will be because of the weight of this text. And we're going to talk a lot more about that next week. But as a Christian, membership identifies the ones who are responsible for shepherding you. A Christian is not called to submit to all leaders. That's not what this text is saying. But theirs and membership clarifies this. It is a statement of acknowledging who that is. And as a pastor, membership identifies the ones for whom I am responsible. Who will I give an account for? I am not called to be responsible for all Christians. I will not give an account for every Christian in Joplin. I will not give an account for every person who wanders into the doors. But for those who have said, you are my pastor, I am a member of this church, it identifies for me the unique accountability I have on their behalf through membership. As we, um, as we conclude, I want to um, just offer an invitation to all of you. For one, if you are a member of Rooted Church, as we start a new year, I just want, I want to encourage you to be reminded of that which you have committed to. And I have no grievances in that way. I certainly serve without groaning. I am blessed to be a part of an amazing church, and last year was a great evidence of that for me. But it does say in our covenant that each year we ask you to reconsider then become re-familiar with that which you've committed to. Because for some of you, it's been three years since you signed that covenant. You may not have any recollection of what's on there. So I'm going to be posting that in our family group um, today. And I just encourage you to read through that, reconsider that through the grace of Jesus, kind of evaluate. Man, I'm, I really did that this year. I really didn't even think about this this year. And by the grace of God, through the power of his spirit, repent and let's make that a point this year to, to dwell it, to lean into that, to lean into that aspect of the commitment. For so, so for those of you who are members, I want to just re-encourage you to, to take weight of the responsibility you've been given. You, it's not an informal thing. It's not a light thing. It is a significant thing to which you have been called. And scripture does say you have a job to do as part of that commitment. If you're not a member of Rooted, I just want to be clear about two things. One, this is a place for you. Uh, there's two different kinds of people often when it comes to non-members. For some, not being a member of a church is just a, there's just an apathy there. You know, if you, I just don't want to. I just don't want to be held accountable. I just don't want to submit. I don't want this. And I believe that to be a sin issue. And we have, even as a young church, we have had situations where after a while we just need to tell somebody like, hey, this probably isn't the place for you, that being your situation. But then there are also those who, no, this is actually a conviction issue. There's a real struggle here. There's a real struggle with maybe not seeing this the same way. And that's okay. That's a different thing. Those two things can be clearly identified. Like there's a difference. There's a difference between apathy and conviction. And we want this to be a safe place for those who have a different conviction regarding membership. But I would just invite you, if you haven't, I'd love to walk through that with you. Um, I'd love to put some resources in your hands. Uh, one, I've acknowledged uh, Rediscover Churches at our connection table. And also on the bookshelves, we have this little nine marks pamphlet called Why I Should Join a Church. And you might read these and think, man, I, I still don't agree with that, and here's why, and I respect that, and I love you, and I'm glad you're a part of this church, and I hope you'll remain. But perhaps 
this stirs something in you you haven't considered, and I'd love to just meet with you personally and discuss that. And my hope is at the end of this month on our last Sunday on Shalom Sunday, where we already have a few new members, I'm hoping that maybe we're able to add to that over the course of this month. Next week, we're having that breakfast. For that purpose, I just want to be able to talk about what we believe about membership and maybe answer questions that folks have. In all of this, I just want us to start this year being reminded that the gospel is the re- what unites us above all things. You really are unleavened because of what Christ has done, not because you measure up, not because you're worthy, not because you meet all of the demands of the job description, not because of anything you have done, but because of what Christ has done. That despite how we may see this, uh, where we might land on this issue, Jesus loves you and delights on you in you if you are his, and he invites you to come and be a part of the kingdom and to be a part of this embassy, uh, this kingdom soil here and now that he might grow you and conform you to the image of his son. And I just want to pray for you to that end this morning. Father, thank you uh, for this day, and thank you for these people. Lord, you have, as I said, you've been incredibly gracious to our church, and um, I don't just mean, I don't mean that any individual particular way. Yes, you have... um, added to our numbers, which is a delight. But you've done that in incredible ways. Lord, I thank you uh, for the babies that you're adding um, to our body. I thank you for the people. I thank you for the sin that has been turned away from. I thank you for the things that, uh, that you have done miraculously that we can give no explanation to um, regarding the hearts of our people other than to point to you. Uh, you have done great things And I acknowledge that that is fully you, and I thank you. Lord, I ask you um, that this year you might uh, grow us in our depth, that you might cause us to be healthier um, than than we are now. And I pray, I I continue to pray, I pray that every year for the rest of our lives. Lord, I ask that this year you will entrench our roots just a little deeper into the soil of the gospel than they were this past year that we might depend on you a bit more than we did in 2021, that we might adore you more than we did in 2021, that we might disdain our sin more than we did in 2021 in light of your awesomeness. And Lord, I ask that in your grace, you might lead us to help one another in this endeavor. It is, uh, Lord, we acknowledge It is a difficult thing to speak truth to a brother, to a sister. It is a a difficult thing, but you clearly call us to it. That we are to judge those within the church, but we judge as those whom have been unleavened through your abundant mercy. And so our judgment is different. We thank you. Lord, help us uh, to aid one another to become more like you this year. Give us, Holy Spirit, uh, embolden us to speak truth, embolden us to lovingly go one-on-one to that brother or sister who might just need to hear a word of truth. Lord, even if if there's that right now, would would you embolden us in that way? Might we go with loving grace and truth and speak uh, to those who need it that we might all be conformed to your image? I love you, Lord. 
And I ask for this blessing in the name of Jesus Christ, our true and great King. Amen.